for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing. I'm doing well, Stuart. That's and, good. How's uh, the family? How's the, the family? The the family's okay. This Great. is this is a little unusual. We we usually don't start the shows like this, Stuart. That's okay. <laughs> I know Paul's good not some variety. Paul's not here, but Molly Hoyline is here. Hi, Molly. Oh, hi. Hey, Molly. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I, I didn't even get to say that this is the Internal Medicine Podcast, and and on this show we use expert interviews to bring clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge for our audience. And tonight, and for uh, the brain holes, and for the brain holes, yes. And tonight, uh, we do have some practice changing knowledge. I think at least it will definitely change my practice. Um, so this is a to- our topic tonight is placebo, but. Uh, did you guys want to do some picks of the week? We could, if I had the music first. <laughs> okay. Molly, why don't we start with you? What is your pick of the week? Sure. My pick of the week is going to be a rival podcast. Um, it's not as good as this one, though, so I still <laughs> would recommend the Curbsiders. But I'm, I'm working on a CME talk I'm going to give next month about uh, pain and specifically centralized pain. Um, and I found that Pain Week, um, which is, a, I guess, a, an organization, uh, it's just painweek.org, and they put on a yearly conference, and they have hours and hours and hours of free podcasts that are from their most recent uh, Pain Week meeting get-together. So um, some very interesting lectures and, and um, some very practical uh, sort of day-to-day working in the ER, working in the outpatient setting, chronic pain management, but then also some really interesting theoretical and research-based um, kind of cutting edge uh, in things relating to pain. I Excellent. I can't get enough learning about pain, honestly. It's just so such a big part of what we do. Stuart. Yeah. You have no, a- no, go, go ahead, Matt. What do you have? Okay. I want to hear it. My pick of the week is a book by Dan Ariely, and he is a psychologist and a, I believe he calls himself like a behavioral economist. And he does, he, there's a book called Predictably Irrational, where he does talk about placebo in some of the chapters there. And the, the book is really interesting. He talks about a lot of the stuff that we, we get into on the show during his placebo chapters. But in general, he just has a lot of really interesting things about behaviors that you have that you might not even recognize that are irrational. And knowing that, that human beings tend to do these behaviors unconsciously can kind of help you avoid some of these irrational behaviors. It's a really popular book. I think it's, it was written in 2008 or 2009. And, uh, he's, he's got a a follow-up book, which is kind of just adds on more of his research, but that is predictably irrational by Dan Ariely. All right. And then my pick of the week is, a. Kind of a light read, and uh, it was one of my favorite movies when I was uh, growing up. It was The Princess Bride, but the book is so much better. It's written by William Goldman. Um, it's 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 absolutely hilarious, and I, I I can't read through a few pages without just cracking up laughing out loud. It's it's an absolute. It's really 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 good book, very well written, and it just puts the the movie to shame. So if you like the movie, if you like kind of a light read and uh, kind of a play on history. Certainly read The Princess Bride. I think it's a wonderful book. I had no idea that was a book. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Here you go. I thought the book was just based on the movie, Stuart. <laughs> no, I, you know, I think it's it's the other way around. So the I, I'm pretty sure the book came out well before the movie. Um, but the, the book is very well written. If you uh, like the movie, read the book. It's 10 times better. That is... That is a big, big uh, boast there, Stuart, because it's quite a good movie. No, it's it's a very good book. Okay. All right. I, I thought the movie was very good, and then I read the book. Well, you're setting the expectations high, so I think you know that might work based on what we're going to learn about from Dr., right. Dr. Mark W. Green. I might have done that on purpose. Right. So Molly 
did great work and found uh, Dr. Green and recommended that we do this topic on placebo. Molly, did you want to set it up a little bit? I mean, if you want to just say a sentence or two about why we wanted to do this. Yeah, I mean, I I had... I think about placebo a lot and in, in when I'm treating my patients because I'm not fully convinced that all of the things in Western medicine are as great as we sometimes pretend they are. Um, and I, I happened to hear Dr. Green speak at a, in a lecture and just thought it was a really fascinating topic and, and made me look at placebo in different ways. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited that he's speaking with us. And Dr. Mark W. Green is the Director of Headache and Pain Medicine and Professor of Neurology, Anesthesiology, and Rehabilitation Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He is certified in neurology by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, where he is a fellow and in headache medicine through the United Council for Neurologic Subspecialties. He is an honorary honorary board member of the National Headache Foundation. Dr. Green graduated from Case Western Reserve University, then received his medical degree from Albert Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He received his neurology training at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and during that period worked in the Montefiore Headache Unit of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He was later appointed director of that unit and for many years he worked at Columbia University where he organized a section on headache and facial pain in the Department of Neurology. There, he was Director of Headache Medicine and Clinical Professor of Neurology at the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the College of Dental Medicine. In 2009, he came to Mount Sinai to develop a program and fellowship in headache medicine. Dr. Green was one of the founding editors of Cephalalgia, the International Headache Journal. He also served as the Associate Editor of Headache, the Journal of the American Headache Society. He has a longstanding interest in neuropharmacology and has been a panel member of the advisory board of the FDA section on peripheral and central neurological drugs. He's the director of Mount Sinai's Fellowship in Headache Medicine and was the editor-in-chief of the American Academy of Neurology's recent continuum on headache. Needless to say, we are quite thrilled to have Dr. Mark W. Green on the show as our expert on placebo. And uh, since I forgot to do it at the end of the show, which we recorded already, I do want to thank uh, Nora Toronto, who is an MS3 at the University of Chicago, who did a tremendous amount of work helping prepare us for the show and doing the background research. And she put together a wonderful bibliography, which we will inc- include with the show notes for this episode. So thank you, Nora, mm-hmm. for doing that. It's wonderful. And uh, please enjoy this episode. It's our only placebo-controlled episode. Enjoy. <laughs> you know what? I Very didn't nice. mind that one, Stuart. I, I like that. <laughs> With us here tonight is Dr. Mark W. Green. Hi, Dr. Green. Hi, how are you? Good. And uh, I've really been looking forward to this talk for such a long time. Uh, we, we've been chatting for a little bit here, but... I'm I'm really interested in this topic, and, and it's such a unique talk that I've heard you give on placebo. No, it's a subject that I've not heard other people talk about, but it's really relevant to so many aspects of medical practice. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think this is going to be like a really useful tool to have in people's kind of set of clinical skills. But first, we'd like to ask you just some kind of personal questions. Not too personal, but... First one is, if you had to describe yourself in a one-liner like we do in the hospital, what would that sound like? (laughs) Um, Aging. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I have great hair. (laughs) Um, Okay. How about a little bit more about yourself so so the audience can get to know kind of a sense of who you are? Okay. Oh, I've been in academic medicine for most of my career. Now it's almost 40 years doing mostly headache and facial pain, which is my field. Um, but, uh, what I, I had another career before I did this. I was a uh, cartoonist. Ooh, what sort of cartoons? I like that. Any, uh, well, greeting cards. I, actually, this was, um, the middle of Vietnam war. And I did a lot of work for, uh, magazines that were, that were dealing with war issues. Okay. Now I got to f- see if I can find something <laughs> from you. Stuart <laughs> is furiously. That's a big career change. <laughs> yeah. That seems like a lot more fun than medicine. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I wondered that I worried that they might have uh, managed cartooning, so I figured I'd better get out of that field. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
Well, Molly and Stuart, did you want to ask him anything else? Uh, yeah, I, I actually have uh, an applicable question. So um, since this talk is on placebo, is there any lay book or any uh, widely available book on placebo that you'd recommend for our audience to try to get grasp the the um, appreciation for placebo that you've gleaned over the years? It's really a hard one. I'm not sure how to answer that. I had a book years and years ago on placebo, but uh, there's nothing current written about. That's what inspired me to put a talk together because there's no one source that seems to mm-hmm. deal with it. And I, I think, yeah, the other the other question, I think what you were getting at, Stuart, is how about outside of placebo, just any book that you've recently read that you think is interesting that, that you might recommend for the audience? Yeah, I wasn't going to push that issue. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, I'm a, I'm a big Oliver Sacks fan, I'll confess to you, because the books he wrote were medical, but really that's cheap, because they really weren't medical. They were about humanity, and he was just a, a humanitarian. And there were there's so many of them. You can read about hallucinations, which I found fascinating, awakenings, which is the most famous. There are lots of them, but anything he wrote is worth reading for anyone out there. Great. They are excellent books, yeah. And so another question, what's the best advice that you've received as a learner or that you like to give as a teacher? Well, as a teacher, I mean, I, I have lots of residents for many, many years. And what I, what I really talk to people about is develop a niche, develop an interest in something in your field, but only slightly related to your field. In other words, take two fields that bisect a little bit Try and become an expert at that. What I've kind of learned is no matter how smart you are, no matter how good you are, there are hundreds of people who are better than you. If you know two things that just slightly intersect, particularly in academics, you can become an expert on something. Mm-hmm. Do you still, I, like uh, I, I, I kind of want to take a step back. Do, do you still draw today? Is that something that you you, you do to kind of provide wellness for, for yourself? I only draw for lectures uh, okay. for my own. I don't do it for fun anymore. Oh, okay. no, never, never. <laughs> My son does it. He's a very good artist. So you, you mentioned your son's an artist. Uh, you've been in medicine, you said, for 40 years. Now it's kind of something where a lot of people, when you see that these numbers, a lot of physicians wouldn't recommend their own family members or children go into medicine. What what would you recommend to somebody? Let's say we have some pre-med students listening. Are you recommending that people go into a career in medicine? Oh no, I think it's I think it's a, a, a it's still a lot of wonderful things about medicine. Um, I'll confess to you if you if you uh, make me that uh, I'm married to a psychiatrist. We were both <laughs> students in medical school, particularly in days that there were almost no women in medical school, mm-hmm. almost none, and so we were uh, two doctors. And I have two sons. One is a songwriter, and the other is an astrophysicist. And for not even for a minute did they consider medicine. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. I don't know what I would tell my own kids. I, I mean, I'm really enjoying my career so far. Uh, so I don't know that I would deter anybody from it. But I think what you were telling about, um, I'm not. I'm not yet an expert in anything, but I am trying to create kind of niches or niches, however you pronounce the word, for myself, which I, once I've started to do that, I've noticed a lot of more satisfaction with my job. So I like that mm-hmm. advice. Well, you're, you're here, you're in, obviously in medical education. And so I assume that's not all you do when you see patients. So you already have one. Yeah. Molly, did you want to give us a case, uh, a patient maybe you saw at Cashlack Memorial? Sure. So I I was working cash lack and saw Mr. Sugar, and he's a healthy 55-year-old man with knee pain. Um, He had a sports injury in his 20s and had an arthroscopy at the time, and then now his exam and extra are consistent with moderate knee osteoarthritis. And I'm, as a clinician, trying to decide the best course of treatment. And so based on some recent studies, I'm not that convinced that intraarticular steroid injections are still beneficial, but he's had one in the past and had a positive response and would like to have another. He's also taking glucosamine chondroitin and thinks it's help. Uh, it is helpful, but wants your opinion on whether he should continue. And um, you're thinking about adding an oral NSAID, but you're wondering if cheap over-the-counter options would be as beneficial as an expensive prescription. Um, so I wonder if we could just start by talking about some of the different types of treatments and how they elicit stronger placebo responses. Um, so, for example, I've heard that shots can be more beneficial than pills and surgery can be more beneficial than shots. 
Um, so maybe if you could talk a little bit about uh, different types of placebo and sort of their delivery or colors or cost or timing and how that affects placebo responses. Of course. Uh, well, you, you said it. Uh, surgery is the most effective placebo. It really works well. Uh, injections are better than any pill or capsule. Capsules are still better than a pill. In terms of an injection, if it's colored, it's better. If it hurts, it stings, that's good. Um, <laughs> if the volume is pretty substantial, that's really good. In terms of colors, for example, gold pills are better than silver pills, and they're all better than colors, and white is the least effective of all these things. The bigger the placebo, the more effective it is. The If you give it four times a day, for example, it's better than giving it once a day. Right. If it's bitter, that's also very helpful. And then you talk about cost. There are actually studies that showed that um, brand name placebos were more effective than cheap generics. Hmm. And capsules are more effective than tablets, too. Yeah, definitely. And you talked yeah. about uh, glucosamine chondroitin. And I'm not sure how to answer that because I will offend someone's grandmother, I suspect. <laughs> but there's a study on that subject. And it showed it was very effective. It just wasn't any more effective than placebo. So mm -hmm. it's just so interesting uh, that, you know, these, these, the placebo effect, I think what, what I, what really struck me about this is people talk about placebo effect. They sort of throw it as like, oh, that's no better than placebo, but placebo, there's something to it, right? Oh yeah. There's something even physiologically to it. There's no question. In fact, <clears throat> if you want to make a statement like that, you should really compare placebo to no treatment. You know, and, and there are methodological problems to having a study where there's a drug, a placebo, and no treatment, because that drives down the placebo response, uh, because people know there's only one out of three chance of getting the drug. So that's a problem right there. <laughs> if you really want to compare, you should compare, in, in terms of that case, no treatment versus placebo, and placebo will likely be more effective. So knowing that placebo can be effective, then how, how do we interpret head-to-head -head trials for non-inferiority? Uh, there, are, there are problems with that. I mean, for, for one thing about non-inferiority studies, which people don't always talk about, is that you, you, know, you predefine a, uh, uh, you know, a, a range which you'll accept before the study begins. And if you're not inferior to that range, uh, it's a positive study. What what happens if, in a non-inferiority st study, your drug may be superior to the comparator. However, that study doesn't show that either of them do anything. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're making an assumption that your comparator, that your active comparator is actually an effective drug. On its own, that study doesn't show anything other than it's not worse than the comparator, which we haven't proved does anything. <laughs> So what sort of things, oh, go ahead, Molly. Um, well, I was going to say in terms of research, you know, I had always thought of the placebo response as kind of what I could expect my patient to get as a benefit. So kind of the placebo plus the active. But um, I think there's some interesting thoughts in, in your time with, with um, uh, the FDA, was it, and the drug approval panel. Um, you know, maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about this idea that the placebo benefit is is not as is, is not a full benefit. That there are other changes that happen within studies, or other biases that go into the studies that don't necessarily translate into clinical practice, or really benefits of the placebo itself. It's just the way the study design is run. Sure, sure. Well, one thing is um, that the more impaired someone is with their disease, the more likely they are to respond to placebo and get a higher placebo response. When we do a study, and you know this is true, we tend to choose outliers. I mean, that's just the way the studies are done. If you're going to do a study on hypertension, you're more likely to choose people who have really, really high blood pressure, right? Or every condition. Fact is, if you treat people with a high severity of illness, statistically over time, they're more likely to get better than they are likely to get worse. And that's something called eligibility creep. In other words, if if you did nothing else but follow them over time, they're more likely to improve. But that gets built into your study. Um, also, the frequency of, of administration of a drug or a, because I really don't want to restrict it to drugs, 
um, uh, a physical maneuver can be a placebo too. But the more frequently you do it, the more rapidly it does something called regression to the mean. In other words, the reason it's reasonable to talk about placebo is you begin to understand that that won't hold up forever. In other words, I told you that injections that hurt, all that stuff is better than a pill. And you'd say, well, why would I even go there? But the fact is that if you, um, um, that, that if over time, that placebo response will bottom out. So you can't count on that effect to give you your big efficacy of a drug. Mm-hmm. It, it works. It, in reality, if you had a, a drug, let's say, and you had one hit, one opportunity or two opportunities to give this, the more you made it a strong placebo, probably the better. But a lot of the drugs that you and I encounter are things that we use chronically. And therefore, again, don't count on it the placebo response to carry you through forever. Because people argue with me all the time. They say, I don't really care if it works or really doesn't work. It's it's as long as it works. I mean, if the placebo is high, who cares as long as it works? Fine with one or two hits, not fine for weeks and weeks and years of therapy. I wonder if that's why things like epidural steroid injections or, you know, the knee injections, when they study them, oftentimes I'll see the first few weeks, they might, they might have a little bit of a difference, but then Mm -hmm. after a month or two, they start to kind of the, the placebo versus the active treatment in those groups just kind of start to merge. And by a year or whatever, there's no difference. I I wonder. That's actually, that's what regression to the mean means. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a headache doctor. That's what I've done. And one of my one of the wonderful headache doctors in Toronto who passed away a few years ago, John Edmeads. I once heard John say at a lecture, when a new drug comes out, use it right away while it still works. Can you tell us a little bit about the nocebo effect, the kind of the, the other end of things? Yeah. Yeah, everything doesn't have to have a placebo response. You can have a nocebo response. In other words, nocebo means you got worse as a result of what should have been an inactive component of the drug or the physical treatment or anything like that. So nocebo can be very important. And we should talk about the doctors of placebo because that certainly is an important component. And when I think about doctor's visits, I realize that every time you see a patient, probably one of three things can happen without regard to literally what you did. Uh, One is you could have a placebo response. You can amplify whatever therapy you're recommending going forward. If you play your cards wrong, you could have a nocebo response, diminish the response of what you thought would be a good drug or treatment going forward. And I have a feeling a more modest percentage are neutral. I think probably you'll be a placebo or nocebo. And I don't know if it's great, but maybe you won't do anything. (laughs) When when we when we counsel our patients and we tell them about all the potential side effects of the medication that we're putting them on, aren't, aren't we to some to to some extent actually inducing a nocebo effect? Yeah, yeah, we are, and we and that's a that's a dilemma because we have to do that, um, right? And, and it sort of violates the uncertainty principle. Um, in other words, we talk a lot more about side effects, as you know, we all do. To be fair, we probably should also spend as much time talking to them about the benefits, or I'm sorry, the disadvantages of not treating. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. spend a lot of time about mm-hmm. problems of treating. How about leaving them alone? If I come into your office and my blood pressure is 190 over 100, and you could tell me all the terrible things about the drug you're going to give me for my blood pressure, mm-hmm. but you could spend equal time telling me, here's a problem if I don't treat it. And that's an issue with clinical trials, I'll tell you, um, because we... And that's one of the flaws of a lot of clinical trials, which is, I'm not sure how you fix it, but when you do a clinical trial, um, typically you're really hot on this drug. You think this is really good stuff or you wouldn't be part of the trial. Right. The patient wouldn't enter the trial until they think it's hot stuff, right? Everybody right, says right. this is terrible. Then you're dealing with the study coordinator who's who's employed by the company and really interested in making this work. And everybody's really positive. Well, that's great, except that, in terms of truly evaluating the efficacy of this, you kind of wonder whether that's going to influence the study. And, and mm-hmm. that's, that's the uncertainty principle. What, what struck me when I was reading 
and I, I listened to your lecture, I was reading some stuff about placebo is it's kind of like, uh, and I made this analogy. I was trying to tell, tell my wife about what we were going to be talking about. It's like, if I gave you a cup of coffee out of like a, a styrofoam cup and maybe it's dirty and maybe we're, we're not in a very <laughs> nice location and I give you that cup of coffee, but we go to a Starbucks where it's nice and they're playing your favorite music and it smells wonderful in there. And I give you the same exact coffee and you drink, you drink that cup of coffee. The whole experience is going into how you experience that cup of coffee. And I never really thought about medications as being the same way, but that's kind right. of the, my main take home point from all this reading I've done on placebo. And I'd, I'd be interested to think like, eh. is this, is this how we should be thinking about it when we're prescribing therapies to our patients? That, that, that kind of brings up a fair a fair question that I kind of want to tag on before he respond, responds that, that I wonder if a used car salesman would make a better physician because they could, you know, basically play up the medication. But you don't trust used car salesmen, so maybe No, not. I don't. But, you know, they're very good at selling you something that you don't want. Well, that, and that's particularly important, again, in an encounter that'll be relatively brief. In other words, not years of therapy, because then all this stuff will probably <laughs> even out. But in the very beginning, it does influence it. You're absolutely right. right. Um, you know, one thing we, you know, what I've talked about is a doctor is a placebo, too, and the institution's a placebo. When you do a clinical trial and you're from this major prestigious university institution, you'll do better in terms of placebo than if you just come from podunk. Mm -hmm. Same trial, same everything. That'll affect it as well. So the site this, where you are doing the trial also influences the trial. There's also another feature we didn't talk about is the expectation of patients. In other words, you, you see this um, in, in trials of drugs that you, you kind of know work. Uh, for example, the H2 blockers at the time, remember they came out, we didn't have those before. Mm -hmm. And every time a new one came out, the placebo response was higher than the one before because the world sort of knew this stuff, sort of good stuff, it works. And every time another company entered, the placebo response was higher. So people's understanding of this kind of class changes it too. Can you talk a little bit about the physiologic response to placebo and, and what's been proven to actually occur? Maybe from a point standpoint of pain would be the, the easy, easiest to understand. Sure. Well, pain is the easiest one. I'm glad you brought that up because we have a lot of data on that. And if you give a, a placebo, an analgesic placebo, one of the things that happens is that mu opioid receptors in the brain get activated. And that's true if you give an opioid. Guess what? It's also true if you give a placebo. And one of the ways which we can prove that is by using um, naloxone. And naloxone is kind of an interesting drug, as you know, because you don't feel it. If you have an IV running and you give someone surreptitiously naloxone, it doesn't sting, it doesn't burn, they wouldn't even feel it. They wouldn't know that. But you can show that that would reverse the pain. And so we know this, we know the mu opioid receptors are activated. We know that naloxone blocks this. And, and then there's another feature, and that's for pain. There's another feature that is sort of generally seen, which has to do with dopamine. And dopamine levels increase based on the expectation of improvement. In other words, that's, how, that's our reward system, isn't it? That's how we reward ourselves. So if you think that something's going to work, your dopamine receptors will be activated. And if you don't think it'll work, incidentally, or your nocebo response, they'll be deactivated. Um, and what happens is that um, that correlates with the efficacy or the persistence of the efficacy of a drug. So expectation mm. of improvement is very much at the center of the world in placebo response. You got to think it'll work. So we tell people, I'm going to give you this really effective painkiller and it works much better than if you gave them a painkiller without the explanation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. And you can prove it on the studies. You can actually see more activation of these receptors. It's not your imagination. You actually see it. Yeah. That's why I, I, I really think that the, like this is something that we can practically use. Like if you, if you, so what you're saying is if I just gave you a pill and it was a pain pill, it might have some effect on pain because physiologically it's going to work. It might saturate your opioid receptors. But if I told you this is the greatest pain pill ever and I gave it, it was a gold pill and it was a capsule, it's going to work better than if it was just like a white tablet and I told you it was a generic, not a brand name. Something right. And we, call that, we call that placebo amplification. Mm -hmm. So how you 
you know, and and I and I'm not telling people out here to be deceptive. We, we're, we're trying to be honest, but on the same way, you know, in the same way, if we explain to them that this is an effective treatment, and we if we believe that, and we encourage them to get better, they will get better. And it's you know what, what people have to understand: we're not talking about faking people out here. That's not where we're mm-hmm. going. We're talking about physiology, the same physiology that you have with the actual analgesic. Another good example is uh, is caffeine. You know, caffeine um, will activate the same part of the brain um, as placebo caffeine. It's actually identical. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'll tell your viewers to do a little experiment because tomorrow is uh, at least <laughs> five standards is Thanksgiving. And so what you do is you have all these people over and after dinner you say to them, Anyone need a drink regular coffee? And most of them will say, I want decaffeinated coffee. And you say, fine, I'll take care of that. And you give them real coffee. And then you come up the next morning and you say, hey, how'd you sleep? Um, if you convince them it's real coffee, they're far more likely to, I mean, I'm sorry, decaffeinated coffee, they're far more likely to have a perfectly good sleep than if you told them this is plus, this is caffeinated coffee. And the physiology of what you see is identical if you actually scan them. Wow. I'm I'm just imagining this was I there was an SNL skit with Chris Farley back in the I don't know if it was the eight, late 80s or early 90s where they they swapped out his coffee and then after he had drank it they told him they're like sir we swapped out your coffee with decaffeinated crystals and he flips out and anyway I was imagining that happening with the guests but we're doing the opposite here we'd be giving them caffeinated coffee and telling them it was decaf so remember that Ed I also was thinking in terms of your your comment on the coffee in the restaurant um, um, this is not to offend Molly, but um, um, you have this great wine area north of you. <laughs> so a number of years ago in the wine country, uh, they uh, had a good year apparently and put this stuff together called Two Buck Chucks, which apparently won a lot of awards and uh, was very offensive to uh, to connoisseurs of wine because this $2 bottle of wine won many, many awards. And I've read, um, you may know if this is true or not, but I've read that if you gave a lot of people white wine or red wine with blindfolds on, they were often wrong, even identifying the fundamental type of wine. So, you know, it's, we're not always... People definitely respond to that. Yeah, the whole setting of the cost and the the luxury of it. And That's right. It's all about the experience. Yeah. So the styrofoam mm-hmm. is a really a terrible idea, as opposed to a wonderful mug in a Starbucks. It tastes better. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So I I really like that idea of sort of thinking about communication and communication training and sort of thinking about the idea of of making sure we not sell, but share the information about the benefits just as much as the the downsides of treatments. But in cases like our our case that we talked about initially from Cashlack, where we're you know, we know the evidence of glucosamine chondroitin is no better than placebo, and there's some increasing evidence that um uh, inter- uh, steroid injections in the knee aren't necessarily better than placebo. How do we ethically kind of share that? You know, how do we support them in those treatments and yet still be honest? And where is the line with that? If if we think there is a placebo benefit, but we're not really convinced it's a necessarily a standard medical benefit. Sure. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I have a problem with that too, just like you do. Um, I th- I sort of look at what's at least benign. And, and mm-hmm. be a lot more interested in giving what I, at least my heart of hearts said, this is a benign placebo over a not benign placebo um, that could lead to, to damage of a joint over time and at least try and exploit the simple things first. Um, we certainly don't have head-to-head studies on two placebos, you know, a head-to-head study that shared one placebo with the other placebo like, like glucosamine and, and intraarticular injections which is true, but we don't want to hurt anybody. Yeah. Uh, now, there are other things that, we, uh, we, that are interesting in terms of that. There are many more invasive things that have been done that are interesting um, in terms of placebo. The, it came up um, at, at several meetings. Is it ethical to do a placebo, use a placebo in a trial of a life-threatening condition? And you, the sort of, gut, you know, the knee-jerk response is that would be completely unethical if it's a life-threatening condition. 
And again, I'm not sure how I stand on this, but there's a lot of data on things like um, um, uh, internal mammary artery ligation, which when I was a student was a standard for angina. Um, this is what I learned. People would would ligate the internal carotid artery for the treatment of angina, driving more blood into the heart. And it was very effective, something like 90% effective. And then, I think this is in the 50s, uh, there was a person in Seattle who got a grant and he did thoracotomies on people. And half of them, he did internal mammary artery ligation. And the other half, he didn't do anything, just sewed them up again. And there's actually no difference whatsoever. And then same, there were similar studies with antiarrhythmic drugs, post-MI, the people who received them didn't do as well as the people who were ignored, you know, and, and, and so even that's a, that's a real tough one too. I, I couldn't believe that when I was hearing, I, I had, I had heard about that before in, um, it was a psych, psychology book I was reading talking about this internal mammary artery ligation because I, maybe someone mentioned it in med school and I was, wasn't paying attention, but I, that, that's semi-recent. I mean, the 1950s, 1960s, I mean, certainly there's still people practicing, like you're saying, at the time that, that you know, remember that, that now we have all these advanced therapies for, for angina and coronary artery disease, but that's that people were doing, and they did it, they disproved it by doing a sham surgery. So who knows if there's other yeah. things, I think more recently. Well, I think even. Go on, Molly. Oh, I was going to say even more recently, just, you know, when I was in training, vertebroplasties for um, osteoporotic compression fractures were very commonly done. And right. then a sham trial of that showed that they really were no better than placebo. And I remember that trial actually sort of piped in the smell of the cements and, you know, had the, the noises of the drills and they did a little incision in the back and, you know, really tried to make it as realistic as possible to convince the placebo participants that they were getting an active surgery. Right. Robert Temple is a senior director in the FDA. And I once heard him say, isn't it unethical to do a trial without clinical value? Mm -hmm. And I think that was an important point. At the end of the day, if you come to market and you promote for generations a procedure that has risks and turns out not to be effective, we've, we've really hurt people. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm looking through a lot of we've gone through a lot of stuff here. Um, Molly, is there I know we had some more some more potential ways to take this. Is there some other things you wanted to get into um, before we start to wrap up with like take home points? Uh, sure, I guess, Mark, were, are you familiar with some of these studies about sort of the open label placebo? I, I just found these really fascinating that, you know, we usually think of placebo kind of as a deception. And then I came across a few studies that they explicitly told the patients that they were getting a placebo, um, but with the idea that, you know, sometimes placebos are helpful in symptom management or self-healing, and people did do better in those. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's very difficult to do this for money reasons, mostly, so pharmaceuticals aren't thrilled. But a lot of trials would probably be better done with beginning the trial, giving everyone placebo, and then taking mm -hmm. out responders, and then doing it again. You know, that is a good way. You know, one of the things we haven't really spoken about is, uh, you know, what's the basis of placebo response genetically? And so far, we've uh, identified 11 placebo genes. I'm sure there are plenty more. But one <laughs> of the very interesting ones has to do with the COMT gene, which deals with the metabolism of dopamine. And these people don't metabolize dopamine. So if you have a placebo response, which has to do with dopamine, because you believe you're going to, you know, you're going to be rewarded. Now you don't metabolize it. You don't get rid of it. And these are the people who, with a little bit of encouragement, will have a, a, a prolonged placebo response, and it's genetically based. Um, and then getting more philosophical, perhaps the um, genetically, the ability to heal yourself through placebo may have an evolutionary advantage. If you think about it, if you can heal yourself significantly through a placebo, that's really good for your, your gene pool. Huh. It, it, and I and I th I think I might have heard you say um, in in your in your talk before that there's something about uh, if someone's more of a pessimist versus an optimist is that a is that a genetic thing too or do you think that's just their demeanor also just affects like someone who's more pessimistic might be more likely to have nocebo effect than a placebo effect? Yeah, well, there, there is some data on these dopamine receptor work where where 
where nocebo responders had dopamine deactivation and placebo responders had dopamine activation. One of the points that I always found interesting was, because I live in New York, and remember when the stock market crashed, however many years ago, and everybody, I could tell you, was walking around totally bummed. Mm-hmm. We were, my wife and I were in Bloomingdale's in New York, and just before Christmas, and people looked like they were totally bummed. So what business opens up and does well, because Bloomingdale's didn't, behind Bloomingdale's on 59th Street, um, Dylan's Candy Shop opened. It's the daughter of Ralph Lauren. The best business to be in when everyone is dysphoric, because one of the ways we reward ourselves is with things that increase dopamine. What increases dopamine? Cigarette smoking, cocaine, and carbohydrates. So being in the carbohydrate business, probably some of the other businesses too, but in the carbohydrate business was a terrific business to be in when people are dysphoric, which leads Mm -hmm. to one thing, and I really don't know whether this is truly relevant, but it's sort of interesting. Um, knowing that carbohydrates increase placebo response, increases dopamine. What do we often use as your placebo pill? A sugar pill, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's not the best idea in the world. (laughs) Maybe that's not so inactive. And I I don't know how significant that is, but I keep thinking about that. Why are we giving something that increases dopamine? (laughs) Yeah, fair point. Yeah, another thing that, that we don't always talk about is that we talk about placebo in a trial. What happens if you get a nocebo? You know, what happens there? And what, what, I'll give you an example of that uh, was um, uh, the Botox studies for migraine, you know, where injections had to do with the forehead. Well, it was sort of interesting to me because if I gave you a bunch of injections in your forehead to treat your chronic migraine, and two weeks later, you could either get placebo or the drug, and two weeks later, your forehead didn't budge. You don't have to be a genius to figure out, hey, I guess I got the drug. If two weeks later, your forehead is wiggling around like crazy, you probably would dawn on you saying, I'll bet I got the placebo. Raising the question, would you then be neutral or would mm. you, would that be a nocebo? Yeah, we have studies to show how often people detect um, what they're getting. In other words, in most clinical trials, the patient the doctor and family members correctly identified the fact that they were receiving placebo. So the blinding, was when was that done? So is there is there a source that we can point people to? So you're saying that the blinding in most clinical trials just does not does not seem to hold up when you actually study it. Yeah, I can I can give you the reference for that. I can just dig it up. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's. Uh, Right. So just because, because I mean, I see randomized double blind controlled trial and I'm like, okay, sounds pretty good. And I, yeah. I know there's, you know, there's some, some, it's on me a little bit to read the, read the trial. You have it there? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. 67% of patients. So about two thirds of patients and cl- clinicians uh, could guess correctly. And 75 percent relatives relatives (laughs) could tell that's that's interesting yeah so the the relatives were able to to detect it more than the patient him him or herself and the clinician all right right, so if you think so good at blinding don't don't kid yourself (laughs) yeah journal of psychiatric research 1980 that's kind of what i tell my patients too is that uh like if i put i i don't know exactly what what medications they're looking at there but for example for antidepressants it's generally those around you that are going to see the the difference or the change and maybe it's that change in behavior the subtle changes in behavior that they're able to be picked up by those friends and relatives no but i'm looking at the study uh 27 studies over thirteen thousand yeah. patients okay so so you know it wasn't one significant study. heterogeneity then so yeah. yeah i wanted to ask you and as an example for our audience, let's say that you're in your headache clinic. Let's say you were seeing a headache patient at Cashlack, and they came in and they said, hey, uh, I, I really think that I, my friend told me that if I take magnesium supplements and CoQ10, that my migraine headaches will get much better. How, how might you handle that? And if there's evidence for those therapies, I'm, I'm not sure, but how would you handle that as a, as a headache physician who knows okay, about well- placebo? Sure, there happens to be soft evidence, so I don't feel it's unethical. There is soft evidence, and there's generally reasonable safety with those products, and they are enthusiastic about it, so I would encourage that. I might also add that on to some 
issue, some some other thing that I felt pharmacologically was more likely to be effective. And I'm fine with polytherapy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you would say, yeah, you know what? Those there there is there is some evidence that those can provide benefit for some patients. Uh, and I'm also there's also this other therapy that I'd like you to take as an everyday thing that that will act in a different way. So that's kind of how you handle it when people come to you. I boost the response of the other agent, which is you know is they're placebo amplifiers, right? Well, we've been talking for a little while here. Uh, I think we've gotten a pretty good overview of placebo, certainly enough to get the audience really interested about it. And one of our, uh, one of the med students who works with us did this incredible job just like going through all the literature. And so we have all these resources we can post. And then uh, certainly all the articles that you brought up, sir, we can, we can put those in our show notes for the audience. Stuart or Molly, did you want to ask Mark anything else before uh, we get take home points? I think it, it was pretty all-encompassing, so I, I don't really have anything else to ask about placebo in general. How about you, Molly? Yeah, I think that was great. Thank you. Well, if you had to just kind of summarize things or a couple take-home points, two or three take-home points for the audience that you thought that they should really remember about placebo and how it can help them in their practice, what would, that, what would those be? Okay, well, placebo is in everything we do and everything we prescribe, and depending upon your demeanor and how you um, respond to the patient, your therapy may become amplified, it may become diminished, and possibly it'll be neutral. And and, and it's ethical and appropriate to try and uh, enhance the efficacy of any agent that we ever prescribe or recommend to a patient. Nothing unethical about that. I I agree. Maybe it's self-serving, but I I, I think that... I think it makes a lot of sense from the the other stuff that we talked about. So, like when you're serving food, you're you're going to want to give a great presentation. It's going to enhance the experience, and it's going to be it's going to be better for the person. So, I think it's okay. But uh, probably don't probably don't in, just inject saline and tell somebody that you're giving them like two milligrams of Dilaudid or something like that. That that's probably unethical. I think. <laughs> I have seen norsaline used before. But <laughs> <No>. giving. <laughs> two milligrams of Deloitte and saying this is an effective painkiller and encourage them that this, they will do better. That's different. Yeah. Okay. I like that. That's a good compromise. <laughs> or just give Dilaudid. <laughs> Not sailing. Want to enhance placebo. Right. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I really, really like talking with you. Thank yeah. You. This has been really fun. It's a fun subject. And hi- It's fascinating. Yeah. All right. I'll let you go. Thanks so much. Yeah. Nice seeing you both. All right. All right. Take care. Bye. Take Thanks care. for your time. All right. It's really easy to talk to. Yeah. Molly, I know there was more in the script, but I feel like we got like a pretty That's good, fine. like practical yeah. overview and stuff. And um, yeah. It, this... Yeah. I think that most, the most important things, you know, sort of that I take out of it clinically mm-hmm. are, are thinking about this as we talked about, about reading journals with a little bit of a different lens of thinking about how the trial design could affect it or sort of what that placebo response really means in practice. And then also kind of in thinking about better communication with our patients mm-hmm. yeah. about well, making the, the, sure they're getting a positive outcome. I think that the biggest thing that I took away both from his audio digest episode and from this is, is essentially that the relationship that you have with the patient you, you can't underscore that enough, that it's important for you to establish a therapeutic rapport. And if you can establish that therapeutic rapport, I mean, that's your placebo effect there. And it's going to be effective all throughout the the uh, disease spectrum and also the psychological spectrum, too. There's a lot of patients that I have that have intermarital strife, and I just kind of sit down, and it's the way that you sit, it's the way that you look at them, it's the way that you approach them. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's about relationship problems, it doesn't matter if it's about their diabetes or their hypertension. If you... Um, empower them, but also allow them to to kind of uh, work with you to come up with some type of a therapeutic plan, then generally the buy-in is going to be better, the response is going to be better, and also um, they're going to be coming back to see you again. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that in order to to, to get more customers per se, but in order to, the, the more frequent that you can see a patient who needs to see you more frequently, the better outcome that they're going to have. I also think we need to like set up our clinics and just make them like 
beautiful places, music, music playing, everybody's dressed really nice, yeah. and greet you with a smile. And, you know, well, there's, is, isn't there's, I, I swear, I, I remember reading about this, uh, a certain trial that looks at just the physician's attire and compares the white coat to say scrubs mm-hmm. and had, th- there was a significant difference in the outcome that the physician who had the white coat actually had better outcomes than the physician who walked in with scrubs. Mm-hmm. What if there I, were like coffee yeah. stains on the white coat and smell? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know, we, we, I, I'm, I'm sure that there's generational divides. And certainly with the millennial generation, I don't think they want to see the white coat, honestly. Well, I think to enhance my placebo effect, I've been saying this for years. I really need some gray on the sides so that I look like older than I am right now because I still get yeah, accused of, of right. looking young. Which I'm not. I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying. Maybe we should uh, my pepper that hair. My therapeutic. Hair. Yeah. What was the buzzword for placebo? My placebo enhancement. No. What was what the therapeutic enhancement or whatever the buzzword mm. was will be enhanced. Activator was it? Yeah. There you go. That will be very did, much enhanced when I have gray on the sides. I almost wanted to ask about homeopathy, but I kind of left that one aside. I think that would have been a can of worms. All right. Let's. Yeah. It, it would have been. Let's go into the outro. Okay, sounds good. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing Absolutely. you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You, you can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list, complete with our wonderfully done show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And send us your feedback to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And we are on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And this is Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And this is Dr. Molly Hoibling. Good night. Well, hello, Molly. <laughs> nice to have you. Good night. <laughs> Where's you. Paul? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Good night, Molly. (laughs) Paul's fired again. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Paul. I know. I was listening to uh, the recent episode in the car the other day when I was driving my son around, who you may have seen, and he really appreciated your puns, Stuart. So. <laughs> <laughs>